This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. It's Wednesday evening. I had to record these way early this week, so if you have any questions that you submitted that I skipped over, it was just because they came in after I started recording. Sorry about that. Um, And just a reminder, I usually say this at the end, but any question you have at all, ask wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. Because the way all these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an older post. Plus, I really love just kind of scrolling through in real time and having a chat as if we were sitting across from each other at a bar or a coffee shop or something. But anyway, let's jump in and see what we got this week. First up, over on Patreon, Blurry Pixel Games wanted to talk about the Linus Tech Tips video from last week that I had commented on without ever watching. Still didn't watch it. I just, I'm so out of time. I don't, I still haven't touched my guitar that I bought a couple months ago, so I really have to pick and choose where I spend my time. Uh, but I do think I, I must have misexplained last week the wrong way, which is obviously 100% on me and certainly not anybody listening and obviously not, you know, Linus's problem. But my, my issue with stuff like this is what happens next. So Blurry Pixel Games said that If I had watched the video, it would have been in better context because LTT covered how USB-C power delivery works and is applicable. It wasn't just a simple USB-C charger to barrel adapter video. Yeah, I'd I'd never doubted that. I never doubted that they would make a mistake or anything. And a few people mentioned something like, oh, it was a sponsored video. Well, that to me means nothing, especially coming from a group that big because they would have never gotten that big if they just did sponsored videos for money. So, you know, without thinking about the science. So, I mean, with uh, all kidding aside, I know some people were joking about that. You know, I love a good silly joke, but the the reason that I, I have this opinion on things like that is not at all about what that project's about. It's about the next project and it's about how people view stuff like this. So I'm coming from this as somebody who's been focused on retro gaming for over 10 years doing retro RGB and since these things were the modern consoles of the era. And I can tell you right now that somebody is going to get this Frankenstein adapter and plug it into the wrong thing. And in fact, I mean, you could even say that about the replacement triads. However, those physically can't fit into a lot of consoles. So that's much less of a worry. You need the correct pigtails for that. And, you know, with proper labeling, both of these solutions would be fine. But I'm always worried about who gets it next. And I'm also concerned with, and I mean this with all the love in the world, not any, nothing bad, but I'm also concerned about the people who speak English as a second or third or fourth language that we are all lucky enough to be able to have as part of this audience because I'm not smart enough to 
speak more than one language. So they need to come here and learn my language. And a lot of people who, who speak many different languages rely on visual cues. And that's why there's so many things that I, I over explain and I show, especially in the uh, higher production videos, I'll show the same type of example multiple times, three different ways, because I want to make sure somebody who can't understand fully what I'm saying can see what I'm talking about. So when you have a bunch of USB-C adapters plugging into consoles, it doesn't matter if they did it perfectly and flawlessly. The chance of somebody else trying to wire a USB adapter directly into a Sega Genesis is very high. So I think of it from that. I think of it the same way I think of the concern I have for things like the triple bypass, which I obviously love. I spent an unhealthy amount of money testing and buying stuff to make sure that project went through, but there's still a genuine concern that the person who gets that console next, right? Life happens, you gotta trade stuff in, you gotta swap it out, the next person who gets it totally understands, but when if that console's still alive in 10, 15 years, and somebody picks it up and plugs in a composite video cable, they're going to get no signal and they might think the console's broken. And if they opened it up and they took the time to look and go, oh, what's this? Sega triple bypass and stick it into a search window, then that's it. You know exactly what it is. But I'm afraid a lot of this stuff is going to end up in the garbage, which is why I'm always recommending people put like stickers that don't leave the gooey bark on it. Like this is an RGB modded console or something that just lets people know. So obviously all of that could be applied to the Linus Tech Tips video. People could properly label their power supplies, but they're approaching these videos from the point of view of a tech team who wants to show you how to do something awesome, which I obviously have no problem with. I'm looking at stuff like this as this is going to be a nightmare when somebody stumbles across the solution or does it wrong. So that's... um. You know, if what I said last week came out wrong, then uh, my genuine apologies to the LTT team and to anybody who I may have uh, annoyed by that. But I think I got my perspective right this time, and I'm definitely standing by it because that's just it's it's just one of those things that I've been seeing this repeat itself over and over since these consoles were new, and I've seen people make through no fault of their own, I've seen people make the same mistakes. So that's just what I want to comment on. And uh, you know, hopefully this one comes out the right way. So Blurry Pixel Games, thank you very much for your feedback and for letting me know on this. I'm always all ears if I'm making mistakes. I love it when people tell me. I would prefer if you told me politely like Blurry Pixel Games did, but even if you're rude about it, I'll still listen. And, you know, if I if I do the research and I still think I'm right, we're going to have to agree to disagree. But, um, you know, always keep me on my toes, please. I want to make sure I do. I want to make sure I only get the best info I possibly can out to everybody. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Next up, Scherzer Steinholm wants to know if anybody knows of aftermarket rack mounts for PVM monitors. They have a Sony 14N5E, which they want to mount in a rack, and they don't think it's good enough to just have it on a shelf in the rack. 
So that's an excellent question. Uh, I have over here next to me, which I showed in the room tour video, if anybody wants to fast forward that, two eight inch monitors, a PVM and a BVM bolted to a rack mount chassis, which, would, uh, which was meant to have dual monitors in a rack setup like that. And essentially it's the same thing as putting a good metal shelf in it and putting the monitor on it. I got to double check the weight on those, but two eight inch monitors aren't that much lighter than a 14 inch. So I would say that as long as you have a shelf weighted for the exact weight or more, I would always go more. Uh, let me retract that comment. Let's just, I'm going to pull random numbers out of my head. If your 14 inch PVM is 50 pounds, I don't know what that would be other places in the world because they don't teach Americans how to do that, but 50 pounds... <laughs> then I would get a rack rated at 75 pounds or higher, which is overkill and it might be a waste of money. But I think we would all agree that dropping an extra 15, 20 bucks on something that could make sure your monitor and everything below it stays safe is worth the money. So I would definitely do that if you don't find another solution. But that's a great question. Can you still find those rack mounts somewhere? Are they really expensive? Is it something that people at a metal shop would be able to produce? Or is it a very complicated design? And I guess this is also another question for all of you. Are there metal shops, uh, stuff like um, stuff like JLC PCBs 3D printing. They did not sponsor this one, but shout out because I, I absolutely loved how those things came out. But is there something like that that could do bigger designs? Because I would love to take those two amazing magnetically shielded speakers. They're just, for the money, awesome. I'm sure there's better speakers, but for what I paid, and put them in my Sammy cab, but I don't want to cut the original metal that's there. But I would have absolutely no problem unbolting that metal, sticking it inside, you know, taping it in and putting an aftermarket piece there with the correct holes cut for those speakers. And even if it was expensive, even if it was 50, 60 bucks, I would totally just sign into some place, drop the final in and wait for that to arrive. And I would love to see the same thing for stuff like a dual eight inch PVM mount. I, I think that one, you know, I'm sorry for looking off camera for people watching, but I, I think this one should be fairly easy to recreate, but if it's something way more complicated, like sliding rails and all that other stuff, I think then you're just getting into territory that I, I wouldn't even begin to guess how to reproduce. And I would think a sturdy shelf might, might just be good enough. Um, the only other things are back in my IT days, you just want to make sure the rack and the bolts that you use are all rated to hold the correct amount of weight. Bolts should be easy because even with the ones that came with it, don't support whatever. You could just order them online, go to whatever big box stores near you and get some good ones. But the the rails that they bolt into themselves might be something that you want to double check. Maybe those things were rated for 20 pound blade servers with SSDs in them and you're about to put a 50 pound thing in it. It might actually bend those. So great questions. But if anybody else could help chime in on any of those, can you get those PVM rack mounts anywhere? What about a place to get 3D printed stuff? Anybody have another solution for my Sammy cab if I want to use those other speakers, please chime in. I'd really appreciate it. Lewis from Zez Retro wanted to chime in in regards to the person who wanted to convert RGBS to composite. They mentioned they were first going to use a GBS control. So Lewis wanted to rub it in my face that I completely forgot to mention that the GBSC outputs RGBHV or component video, not RGBS, regardless of 15 kilohertz or 31 kilohertz. Um, so 100% correct, Lewis. I would love to make a snide comment right now, but you nailed it. So you would need two things. You would either need a device. If you're going to S-Video, you could get 
uh, Linux Bot 3000's RGB HV, so their VGA to S video converter, and that's all you would need. But if you were going to use something that was a SCART input on it, you're totally right. You would need something like the HD15 to SCART, or you would need to find a device that's component down. But I don't, I don't think that those exist. The opposite does the core you, but I don't think that you could go from component to S video and composite. So thank you for chiming in, Lewis. Uh, sorry to the person who asked that question. I know I, I kind of forgot that point, but I do really hope that we could test Ivory's external adapter a little bit farther, Ivory from Retro Castle, because I think the eventual solution might actually be you could you could choose between either RGB-HV via the D-sub adapter, VGA style, or RGB-S via the SCART, and then have that variable capacitor for composite. Still never, ever, ever going to be as good as composite generated from the console, but I don't think that's what people are, are looking for. I think most people asking these questions understand the differences like I went through last week. So thanks, Lewis. Appreciate the heads up. Victor is Perfect was curious if that $30 scope would be good enough for measuring pots on disk-based systems because lasers can be tedious to adjust. I've heard no. I've not tried this myself. I am by no means an expert in dialing in the correct frequencies. Uh, and in fact, I've, I've barely even done it. I've mostly just seen other people do it. It's not nearly as easy as you would think. I guess on some consoles it is. I guess on some you could solder wires to certain points and attach your probe clips to those wires and you should be able to, but others it's way more complicated. And based on what I've heard, you would need something like the Rigel to do it. Even the middle models between those weren't really going to cut it. And also, just a, a very quick aside on those scopes, I've had a few people ask me my thoughts on ones that were like 100, 125, uh, same style, handheld, portable ones. And my suggestion, and I am not an expert at scopes, this is just my gut feeling based on quite a lot of testing and years of working with people on this, if, if you really are looking to save money, start with the cheapest one, because if you buy it and you're like, yeah, all right, I'm able to test sync on a bunch of stuff. It's handy for arcade boards, but it's kind of useless for everything else. 30 bucks is not going to really piss you off that much. Most of the time. I mean, we've all gone through rough times where 30 bucks would be a big deal. But on average, if you're buying measuring tools for your gaming setup, that's probably going to be something where you wouldn't be upset if you just left it in your toolbox and only grabbed it when you needed it. Whereas if you spent 150 on a scope that didn't even do what you wanted it to do, but maybe you took a couple of weeks to try it before realizing that, so now you're past the return period, that's upsetting. So uh, kind of approaching this as if you ended up buying the cheap one and then eventually getting the Rigel, you're not going to be mad that you spent the 30 bucks. And in fact, even though I have the awesome Rigel right here, as you've seen in the live streams I've been recently doing, very often I'll grab the little portable one just because it's battery powered. And if I just need to make sure something is within safe ranges, that's beautiful. I'll start with that. And then, you know, if I need to then remeasure on the Rigel, cool. So I think if you're curious, I don't think it's going to work for, for lasers, calibrating CD lasers on consoles. But for other stuff, if you're kind of back and forth between getting one of the middle modeled ones, maybe just get the cheaper one to start. Uh, and the only other point is that a scope that I used, 
is kind of a pain because you have to have it hooked up to a computer, but that's going to be total workflow. That might be powerful enough to do lasers. You're going to want to look that up yourself, though, because I haven't tested it with that. But that's a situation where you might be able to save a couple of bucks, actually quite a lot of money, from getting the Rigel. But the downside is you're still tethered to a PC, which might not be that big a deal. So the stuff like that might be worth looking into if it's important to you. I'm only talking in the context of those uh, cheaper, portable, battery-powered ones. I don't know if you're going to get uh, as massive of an upgrade going from the $30 one to the 150 as you would going from the $30 one to the Rigel. So hopefully that all made sense, but if I just confused you more, please let me know. Question from Lou from Lou's Retrosource. Awesome. I've got two awesome YouTubers here asking questions today. I usually direct some of these your way, Lou, so let's see what you got. Uh, Lou's got a question about RetroNAS. They've been waiting for a Docker container, but that looks like it's going to take a while. So they're just going to set up a virtual machine on their Unraid server, which is exactly what I use. So uh, that's an excellent solution. Their question is, would it be easy to migrate a RetroNAS install to another machine? They would eventually like to switch to a Docker container when that's released. So there's a couple of different answers to that. First, I believe that Sorak had implemented a backup and restore feature for the settings. I haven't used it because I haven't had time to test, but if that's all in there, if it's, uh, if it's still something that people could use, and not in like a private beta, I mean, then all you would have to do is back up your settings to a file. And then if you were to do something like move from the VM to a Docker in Unraid, you should just be able to restore your previous settings and then uh, even if it has to re-download everything, I mean, it's a, you press a button and walk away and it re-downloads everything based on your previous settings. So that would be fine. And then you would just have to repoint it to, uh, to the same location on your server. So that's just going to be a little bit of tweaking in your Unraid settings. Now, if you're talking about I have an Unraid server and I want to get a Synology NAS and whenever the Docker container is released over there, then you're going to have to migrate everything over. So what I would then do, I would do the same thing about backing up and restoring if that's even available on the Synology, because uh, just a, a quick aside here, if you have one of those QNAP, Synology, Drobo, whatever the little NAS boxes, like a mini computer with a bunch of drive base in it, you could install Docker containers in order to have different kinds of plugins and stuff. But in order to port RetroNAS over to those, each component is most likely going to have to be its own Docker. So it wouldn't be you load up RetroNAS, then go into that interface and download stuff. You would download you know, RetroNAS's version of SMB, RetroNAS's version of this, and have each one. So you might not be able to do the backup and restore unless you're going from a PC solution, whether that's Raspberry Pi, virtual machine, whatever. So if you're talking about going to a Docker like in a dedicated NAS box, you might not be able to do the backup and restore settings, but that would just mean that you would have to manually install each component again, which is easy and just time consuming versus press a button and walk away. But then you would definitely have to take the files. You know, uh, I actually, uh, I, I want to be careful what I say here. If you're going from one existing solution that's not moving to another, you would have to copy files over to your network. If you were in a situation like you were going from one PC to another, you would be able to just move the hard drive. But in the context of um, Lou's Unraid server, then I don't, I don't think you could do that. But what I would say is that I was wondering if there was going to be any downsides of running RetroNAS as a VM. 
And I was kind of hesitant even to try it out at first other than just for testing. And I eventually did just months ago now, load that up and that's been running flawlessly on my own RAID server. So I think that there might not be a reason to change unless extra features were added or unless, like I said, you're physically going to a different machine. So for anybody listening, not just Lou, who's kind of in that same situation, if you're running Unraid, loading up uh, a VM on this and just following some guides should be, should be pretty easy. And now that I say that, did I ever post that guide on RetroRGB? <laughs> I got to look it up. Uh, Dustin Dasutin did a guide for that, which is how I did mine. And I don't remember if I ever posted it. So I'm going to go right now after answering your question and check with Dustin. So, hey, check Retro RGB this week. Maybe there'll be a a post um, that I should have done six plus months ago on there. Next up, Quantum Guitar just picked up a Sony PVM1340 and had a bunch of questions about that. I read the entire post. I just want to skip to the answers just because it'll probably be easier to explain. But first of all is sync. Um, I am 99.9% sure that that PVM could accept anything. Composite video as sync, Luma as sync, 75 ohm C-Sync, and TTL level C-Sync. So basically anything that's not separated horizontal and vertical sync. Please, please, please check a manual on that just to make sure and check out its voltage tolerances. But I've owned a couple of those and I don't think there was a worry about that at all. Uh, So double check, but that should be fine. That also means that you could plug basically anything into it so you don't need to worry about any kind of sync filtering. Just get a cheap passive SCART to BNC cable. And remember those are directional. So you wanna just make sure to set that up properly, but that's it, it should work perfect. Uh, next, when using an AV receiver with the RetroTINK 5X, do I run my analog audio through the 5X or have I tried directly running it into a receiver that might have their own kind of bypass option so when not using any of those other Dolby Surround stuff? So, depends where I'm at. If I'm down here in this setup, um, I would absolutely skip everything and go directly into the amp to use my analog bypass setting. I I word vomited that this week in the video I posted, um, as well as be able to enable things like all the Dolby Digital and all that other stuff. Now, whether your receiver would be able to uh, to decode Dolby ProLogic through the tank would have to deal with whether you could manually force mode when an HDMI signal is inputted. Mine does without any problems, Joe Redifer was nice enough to check twice for me and even sent screenshots just so I could understand what he's seeing. And his very nice receiver, way nicer than mine, could not do that. So it's not a matter of cheap, good, bad. It's just some do and some don't. So that's just something to keep in mind. However, I never use my tink down here except for, of course, capture and, and live streams and stuff. I only use it upstairs on my OLED TV with a two-channel setup, which I'll have a video on that at some point in the next couple of weeks, probably first week of January. But for that for that setup, I run it through the tank because while it's not the world's best analog to digital converter, and as we all know, you could spend thousands on ADCs and DACs if you really wanted to for audio, it does a great job. There's nothing wrong with it. I wouldn't do MD4A measurements through it, but I, you know, that's that's a completely different use case. So for, if you're talking about just using it, I think it would do more than a good enough job. So for your personal setup, I would say 
skip the tank and go directly into your receiver because if you have a really nice receiver then you might already you might have separate modes available for analog sources that your ears could potentially prefer i guess a good analogy if anybody's ever listened to genesis audio unfiltered versus filtered or uh, if you get your audio from a sega cd's rca ports versus the din there really isn't a right answer it's what your ears prefer but that whole direct analog bypass thing Sometimes I love it. So worth, you know, certainly worth looking into. Um, moving on, they were thinking about running the RetroTink 5X at the same time as the PVM. So that's very easy. I th as long as that PVM has inputs and outputs, which some don't. I know the 8 inches don't. They're too small to, to have all those ports. But I think all of the 13s and 14s do. If that was the case, all you would need is go into the PVM with that same exact SCART to BNC adapter and then get a BNC to SCART adapter with obviously a plug on the end, not a receptacle. And remember, those are directional. That's why I said it in that order. But then, yeah, just run it through the PVM. Your PVM does not have to be on in order to run it. And then just go right into the tank. Just remember, though, what goes in comes out. So if you have some crazy wired console that was improperly botted that outputs TTL through the SCART pinout, then you could potentially harm your retro tank. But it sounds like you have everything in order. I mostly said that for anybody else listening. So, yeah, that's a perfectly good solution. If you don't have the ability to do that, though, maybe when it, maybe your model doesn't have the outs, maybe they're broken or something like that, you would have to find some kind of powered splitter that could manually take the signal and split them to two. Um, the G-SCART is where I always go for that, but that's a lot of money to spend if you're just looking to, to split the signal. There's a few other devices out there that I've seen that I have not personally tested. Um, Voltar had an open source project out there that I don't know what the heck happened to that. So we might have to swing back around and ask somebody to make a run of those or something. But, you know, there's a few other cheaper solutions out there. But And you could try to manually wire something like using an Xtron RXI. But then you're going to have to worry about sync voltage levels. So I guess I would start with your monitor. And if that doesn't have outputs that work, then let me know and we'll continue this conversation in the future. Um... They're also a big fan of the 240p test suite, and they like tweaking things and calibrating it, so do I have any advice for doing so? This is a cop-out answer, but my honest, genuine answer is subscribe to Steve uh, Retrotech on Patreon and just go through and watch all of his videos. I think all of his videos are free on YouTube anyway, but I think he likes to help out his Patreon subs anyway, so if you run into any issues, he might be able to help out with that. But yeah, Steve's been nailing it with all those videos. So I, I would point you in his direction for advice on that because I love and appreciate this technology, but I just don't have time or patience to calibrate. It's been a long time since I've like actually sat and tried to calibrate one. So I would, I would be the worst person to ask at this point. And lastly, they say this model uses a black tinted Triniton, Trinitron tube where the more advanced versions offer a super fine pitch Trinitron picture tube. Do I know anything about or anything about the difference between the two? No. The only thing that I would say is that the smaller the CRT you have, the more the lines, the TVL, are smushed together, which means by default you get a sharper picture just by using a smaller tube. This is something that anybody that grew up back in the day remembers, because you know your giant 27-inch TV that your neighbor might have is pretty impressive when you walked in the room back in the 80s. But then when you kind of get up close to it and you realize I could have just sat closer to my 
cheap 13 inch and it would have been a little bit sharper so you know all kidding aside though i mean that's that is very true the smaller you get the more they're smushed together so you might not really have to worry so much about the tube difference and i think what would be a much bigger concern is just quality of the tube and i'd be willing to bet and i might be full of shit but i'd be willing to bet that if you had one of the more advanced versions that was old and kind of beat up versus the supposed not as good one that was near new there would be hands down no difference. The one that was supposedly not as good would be way nicer to look at. Just my guess there, but I just wanted to answer honestly as always. Vladimir Raskin wants to know what my thoughts are on using a PVM in a dedicated arcade setup. I think that's freaking awesome. And in fact, that's something I've wanted to do for a long time. And the only reason I didn't start going down that road now that I'm in the burbs is because I was able to get some of those candy caps. Shout out again to Beast for helping me out with that. But um, so that's the only reason I didn't do that is because I was like, all right, well, I love the way these look. You know, these are pretty cool. I'm just going to stick with those and rebuild them from that point of view. But it's the same difference as getting a really nice consumer TV and RGB modding it versus a really nice PVM. PVM is going to look better, hands down. Now, you might prefer a different look. I'm not telling anybody what, what tube to prefer, but yeah, I think it's absolutely awesome. Now, you have a PVM 20L5, which is multi-format. So the only thing I'm going to add, uh, add to that is if you wanted to play Dreamcast through this setup as well, then, I mean, that's got to be the coolest monitor you could imagine, right? Because then you could have all of the 15 kilohertz stuff and switch over to 480p when you're using Dreamcast, or I guess even some PlayStation 2 style arcade games. And obviously, if you wanted to have a Naomi, or I forgot what the arcade version of the PS2 is called, but, you know, now you could actually keep it a true arcade system, but also access those 31 kilohertz modes. There's actually a couple of later model arcade boards that do basically VGA, and that would allow you to have one monitor that does everything. Now, if you're talking about something like, you know, you only care about original arcade boards from the 90s and earlier, and you're never doing 31 kilohertz, I would say maybe use that multi-format PVM elsewhere and, and then use a 15 kilohertz only one. But in your personal setup, it seems like you have your BVM for your main sit-down gaming and you want to use this other one for an arcade. So I would say, hell yeah, go for it. Um, except you're going to run into the same problems that I ran into, which you talked about in your question anyway. There is no off-the-shelf thing that you could do for this. So what you would have to do at that point is make a decision. Do you want to build a shelf-style thing, or do you want it to physically look like an arcade machine? And I don't think there's a right answer. I think this is one of those, whatever your eyes prefer is the win. Because the setups at Brooklyn Arcade in the basement are essentially a BVM on a table with a pro-grade arcade stick in front of it. Uh, they have PVMs and BVMs down there. And then they have arcade boards and stuff and some consoles hooked up. And the experience is equally as good as any arcade machine, if not better, because those tubes are awesome. But it doesn't look like an arcade machine. You're not... You're not having that, I feel like I'm in an 80s or 90s arcade at that station. Brooklyn Arcade kind of feels like the most badass version of that. But just saying that one, you know, the couple of sit down stations they have. But if that doesn't bother you, you could get something like one of those wire racks that I talked about on wheels. And you could get a bunch of people have suggested keyboard stands for like musical keyboards for professional keyboard players. Anybody that's a Dream Theater fan seen Jordan Rudis going nuts up there and his keyboards don't move. So that's 
that's certainly a good place to put a nice heavy arcade stick. And you could, you know, with those adjustable height um, racks, you could have something that where you sit down, you have your arcade stick kind of, you know, uh, normal level for you. And it, it'll feel like a sit down arcade, or I guess you could do the same if you wanted to stand up. But if you're talking about actually making it look like an arcade machine, I think you're going to have to make something completely custom. And I don't think it's going to be easy because uh, while you can use some mounting points on that, you're just going to want to make sure to break. I mean, those are heavy monitors. So you're going to have to build something big and heavy that could withstand holding that weight, probably at even at a slight angle. So there's always going to be some gravity pulling down on the back. And remember, the plastic backs of those 20L5 are very, very fragile. So, you know, while I don't ever want anybody to drop their PVM, if you dropped that foot off the ground on the bottom or side, you're probably going to be fine. But if you dropped it a foot off the ground on its back, that plastic is going to smush through and smash the neck board. And there goes your gorgeous monitor. So you're really going to have to decide how far you want to go. If I had an infinite budget, I know a few carpenters that are just brilliant. They're artists and carpenters at the same time that could build me something that looks just like whatever my favorite arcade cab is, where you would basically take the front off or, or back, slide this in its place, and it would kind of bolt in and be more than sturdy enough to hold it in place. So that's what I would do if I had like an infinite budget, but you're going to have to make the final decision on that one. As you could tell, though, I'm pretty excited about this project because uh, it's something that I've kind of wanted to do, and I'm certainly rambling on about it. Um, so I think that's basically all of your questions. Um, you know, if you really want something that's sentimental, like maybe your favorite game in the world was Mortal Kombat 2, maybe you trade this for a, a fully restored in mint condition MK2 machine or something like that. I don't know. You could certainly look into doing all of that stuff. But I, I love my 20L5. I think it's an awesome monitor, and I think this would be a perfect, perfect multicade that covers all generations of arcade if you wanted to use it. Tony Escobar has a couple of questions and a funny story to share. They've been working at this place for a while now, and at the same time that they've been working there, they've been searching the internet to get a CRT, and they realized that there was one in their office, a Zenith HealthView CRT with a separate matching DVD-VHS combo. And once they realized, like, oh, crap, maybe what I want is this thing right there, they asked their IT department for it, and they gave it to them. So always keep your eyes open. Those CRTs that I've gotten uh, the past couple live streams I did, my friends who work at schools have found them in, like, closets and have basically just said the same thing. Hey, could I have this? And they're like... Yeah, get it the heck out of here for us. So you could score good quality CRTs that way. But, Tony, you're going to have to do the same thing that I ended up doing on both of those, is get it home, uh, kind of look at every marking on it. Look for serial numbers, look for model numbers, look for specs. And then you probably are also going to want to pop it open and look for a model number on the tube. Now, like I always say, over and over and over, you could die working on CRTs. Probably not going to, but the chance is not zero. So unbolt it, very carefully pull the plastic back, look in with a flashlight, don't touch anything, treat it like it's radioactive and you'll be completely safe. Just don't go stick in your hand in there. Uh, and look for model numbers on the tube itself and see if you could uh, somehow get it open in a way where you could take a picture of the chassis, the circuit board that's connecting everything in there. And 
you between all of that, you'll definitely be able to find out exactly what it is. There's an excellent chance that unless somebody accidentally scraped off the model number sticker that you can get all of your info from there. But at the very least, like those tubes that I just opened up, I found out that one of them should probably be the perfect fit for the Sammy cab. And then I picked up a fully restored chassis for it, which is a project that I'll probably have to get to in the new year. But you know, basically a free, barely used CRT from a school is now going to essentially be a near brand new arcade monitor for me. So, you know, this is, I told that side of the story just to kind of remind everybody, like, even something that doesn't work anymore might not be junk. It's a lot of work to figure that out, of course, but, you know, keep your eyes open for a good quality CRT here and there. But um, also just kind of find, look for any information you can on it. Hopefully it's like a rebranded something, um, you know, Sony PVM, Ikigami, whatever else. But even if it's a consumer CRT with a fancy medical grade sticker on it, you might still have a pretty awesome monitor there. Uh, the only other thing too is double and triple check the inputs on the back because the one of the ones I got had an S-Video port that was kind of like buried in there um, and I didn't notice it in the first glance. So check all the ports and to be honest, if you find that maybe it's got a custom RGB connector, you might not have to do any mods to it at all. Eventually you're going to have to recap everything with capacitors in it, but you might be able to just use it as is. So congrats on the find. And, uh, you know, if you don't mind, let me know what you find out about it, just because I love CRTs and I'm interested in that stuff. A couple of power related questions from Oliver Clare, who, by the way, just shout out to Oliver and all of the badass work he's been doing on the wiki. Much appreciated. Uh, thank you. know, it's, whenever you do work on a project like a wiki, it's very often a thankless job because you have all of this awesome info on there and then people just use it. And we're all so used to just going to Wikipedia, it's very easy to forget that somebody took the time to do that. So thank you, Oliver. Uh, but moving along to the question, uh, Oliver was wondering, now that I've gotten the CRT well mostly set up, how am I doing power management? I'm not. Um, I have separate power strips, each plugged into the wall. Uh, I don't think, I think I only have one power strip plugged into another, which I never ever like to do, but the second down the line has all stuff that doesn't matter, you know? USB chargers and, you know, things that you're not going to really see a, a huge decline if you if you have some kind of power issue with it. But I basically uh, turn it on in chunks. Um, some of the stuff is plugged into my UPS, like my Unraid servers plugged into that. The uh, HDMI splitter going to my projector, I showed that in the video I posted on Monday why I needed to keep that powered 24-7. But everything else has its own set of power uh, strips. And it, it kind of, I tried to get the flow to feel natural. So you power one on, and that's the projector, the amps, and, and the things that I would use the most often, Apple TV, you know, um, cassette player, record player. And then on another one, I have the analog side of it, that, that side with my VHS player, Betamax player, Philips CDI interactive multimedia setup, um, and also uh, one of the two CRTs. And then all of the BVMs are in their own separate power strips. So those are never even basically connected until I manually go and do that. So having it, uh, having it separated like that made sense for me and my setup, but that does not sound like it would make sense for yours. You could kind of do a variation of that where you have your core set up on one power strip. And then maybe if you're uh, Oliver's connecting over 30 consoles. So you know, you could have it based on location. This rack is on this power strip. 
vice, you know, or yada yada, whatever you want to do there. But it almost seems like you would want powered networked uh, power strips. So stuff where each individual uh, plug could be assigned its own name. You need an app on your phone or PC to log in to power these on and off. And for my personal setup, that would drive me crazy. Because right now, if I'm listening to music or, you know, um, or watching a Blu-ray and I want to switch over to play a video game, I just walk over and I press a button and that's it. You know, as opposed to opening up your phone, opening up the app, connecting, doing all of that. But if you're talking about 30 plus consoles, that might be easier and pretty cool at the same time. They're not cheap, but I guarantee if you do some poking around, you could probably find cheap versions. So maybe the one out there that's the pro level version where you could plug a hundred things into it's 10 grand or something, but maybe they have a couple of at home versions that you could plug into where you could from your phone or, or any network, of course, you could power off the entire strip, individual ports, whatever you want. So that way you don't have to worry about location. You just wire everything is everything in wherever it goes. Um, but that's, I mean, kind of take a look at that and definitely let us know your solution because I think that's something that is scalable because I'm sure there's people with a similar setup to mine that would love an app and think I'm stupid for wanting to have to get up and walk over and press a button. And that's cool. There's many different right ways to solve it, but I'd be interested to see what you kind of land on. Also, they were thinking about scenarios where they could possibly overload their gaming room's power circuit. And the highest load scenario they could imagine would be a four-player LAN party. So four consoles, two flat screens, and two CRTs powered on all at the same time, which would also mean four switch boxes, two Extron cross points, two upscalers, and a couple of DACs all powered on at once. I don't think that would be an issue. I could be wrong, and you're definitely going to want to check full power consumption. You might want to get one of those little adapters that I showed the other day. I'll put a link in the description just because when I, I talked about that, it was actually a couple months ago now, but I just was, I had a buzz and I saw something on Amazon. I was like, oh, $20, let me buy this thing. And I thought it was dumb until I started using it. But you plug it into the wall, you plug your device into it, and it shows you how much power it's drawing. And I've used it so much now, just some curiosity, some to, to actually calculate things. I, it, I just think it's such a worthy tool to have for people that's worried at all about power. So maybe try one of these things and just kind of give your own measurements of like, okay, this console and this is a total of X amount of wattage and X amount of amps. And, and I'll do it individually one at a time. So you add all four up and it gets to this number and I'm going to add some more to that just as a buffer, like you might actually be completely fine. And the other thing too, that I think Steve from RetroTech's been showing is CRTs didn't draw nearly as much power as people, as people would have imagined. And I understand the visualness of it, right? It's this big, huge, heavy thing and you power it on and it goes boing. And you know, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like a nuclear reactor starting up, you know, I'm being a little bit crazy here, but you know, I think anybody, who recognizes that would, would understand what I'm trying to make you visualize and that it sounds like something big and powerful. But I distinctly remember when the early plasmas came out, uh, I, I think in 2006, I asked my boss to borrow one so I could do some testing at home for one of the projects we were working on. And of course I made it my, my main living room TV for a while. Cause if I'm having it at home, why wouldn't I? Right? So I hooked it up and the next month my power bill went up. And I thought, no, that's, that's gotta be a coincidence. Maybe there was a couple of really cold nights or something. And 
I used it for like two or three months and then switched back to my Luva Articos 30-inch CRT and my power bill went back down. So I think CRTs don't take up as much power as people might imagine at first. Uh, certainly flat panels don't as well, depending on the size. So that's just something that you're going to want to double and triple check just to make sure that you know everything adds up to itself. If you have something that you know draws a ton of power, you mentioned a very high output PSU on your computer, you might want to consider a d different solution for that. Maybe plug it into a different plug that has its own circuit breaker, which is a little crazy, except Oliver's building this room from scratch. So with the walls out and the ability to easily run wire, I would say that's one of those crazy things where you might want to do it because it's always context, right? If, if somebody told me that the right way to connect my PC would be to tear apart my wall and ceiling and rerun all new wires over here to get a dedicated setup, I'd say you're, you're nuts. There's no way any normal person would do that. But if you're building a place you're, or you're even rebuilding a room and the walls are already taken apart, how much would it possibly cost to run a dedicated port? couple of feet of a, you know, or a couple of meters or whatever of power cable, you know, a circuit and the circuit breaker and just run them alongside the wall. It's, it's like nothing compared to what it would have cost. So maybe now's the time to drop an extra one in just for your PC and, uh, and maybe even connect uh, some kind of UPS solution up on your circuit breaker. My buddy Phil did something like that. And I, I can't remember the one he got. It's really expensive, but you know, if, if you're dropping cash on this, and it's, it's going to be like your forever room. Who knows? Maybe that's something you'd be into. But all awesome questions and uh, such a cool setup. I can't wait to hear about it when it's done. Well, that's it for this time. As always, thanks to everybody who participates in these things. And of course, and especially thank you to everybody who supports in any way, because it is you who is keeping all of this craziness alive. The website, the YouTube channel, the podcast, the Q&As, all of the crazy research that I hopefully have been doing enough live streams to show you kind of a glimpse of what goes on behind the scenes. So thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. And I should probably see you next week. I'm still kind of pulling out of some craziness, good stuff, but there, I might have to skip next week, but I, I think everything's going to fall into place. So hopefully I will see you all next Thursday night, Friday morning.